Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Let the record show that Miss Riley with the Public Defender's Office will represent Mr. Anderson. Well, Your Honor, I'm due for vacation. I haven't had a vacation in a year. Leave me alone. Jury tampering is a felony. Will you have a tamper with me? Yet. A bag lady found this down by the river where Elizabeth was killed. What are you, a detective now? The nation's capital. A public defender facing the biggest dilemma of her career. Miss Riley, have you had contact with a juror on this trial? If I find any evidence of collusion, I'll have you disbarred. If he did it, I'm going to vote guilty. But if he's innocent, I don't want that on my conscience. A juror with information that can help her. What you're asking me to do is absolutely illegal. You're going to let your client just fry because you want to play by the rules? Or destroy her. I mean, I thought the whole idea was to find the truth. Something was in there. And Elizabeth Quinn found it. What's the connection? This behavior is bordering on professional misconduct, Miss Riley. I'm no angel. I'm having a really hard time just, you know, pretending like it's business as usual. They were brought together by a murder. But of the murder cases I have prosecuted, this is the most horrible, the most senseless, the most indefensible. By a mystery. Did you kill Elizabeth Rose Quinn? This is a bad place to have enemies. Who is this? I said, who is this? By a suspect. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Suspect from 1987. The studio was TriStar Pictures, release date was October 23rd, 1987. The running time, 121 minutes, and it was rated R. The budget was $14.5 million, and the box office took in $18.7 million, making it the 58th-ranked movie of 1987. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars. Here's his review. Art films can play all the games they want, but if you're going to make a film in a commercial genre, then I think you have to play by the rules of that genre. In the case of a courtroom whodunit, that means you can't produce the guilty man out of left field. With no clues and no preparation, the audience has to have a fair chance to figure things out. I like Cher and Dennis Quaid's scenes together, and I admired their performances. Indeed, I found a lot to like in this movie, which was directed by Peter Yates with particular attention to the texture of the lives of his characters. One of the movie's themes is that all of the characters are homeless, not just the bum, but also the lobbyist, the public defender, and everyone else we meet. They have places where they live, that they used to sleep at night, but they do not have a quote-unquote home, and they do not have loved ones around them. The movie develops its case with the kind of logic I enjoy in a whodunit. We meet the suspects, and we evaluate the clues. Suspect is fun when Cher and Quaid interact. She does a convincing job of playing a lonely career woman, and he's a slick lobbyist with more charm than substance. There are lots of good supporting performances, including a tricky one by Liam Neeson as a deaf mute who gradually reveals his true history. But the closing revelations made me rethink the whole plot, and it made it look less like a case of jury tampering than audience tampering. And that's the end of Ebert's review. Now, I'm not sure when I first saw Suspect. I know my parents saw it either in the theater or at home video, and they enjoyed it. 
but it was considered quote unquote too adult for me at the age of nine or ten. So I likely saw an edited version on TV a few years later. Now I've always enjoyed courtroom procedure films, even at a young age, and there's plenty of courtroom action in this film. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Cher, who plays Kathleen Riley. If you didn't know already, Cher began her career as a singer with her then-husband, Sonny Bono, in the 1960s, and the couple hosted a very popular variety show in the 1970s. But it was the 1980s where she arguably had the height of her fame due to her transition into movies, and she really had a terrific run in films beginning in 1983 with the film Silkwood with Meryl Streep and Kurt Russell. She also received critical acclaim for her performance in 1985's Mask with Eric Stoltz and Sam Elliott. But it was 1987 that was her finest year of her long career where she appeared in Suspect and two hit movies, The Witches of Eastwick and Moonstruck. For Moonstruck, she won an Oscar for Best Actress. Dennis Quaid plays Eddie Sanger. Now, Quaid's career began in the late 1970s, and if you didn't know already, he is the brother of Randy Quaid. Now, some of Dennis Quaid's best-known films prior to Suspect include Breaking Away, the Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, The Right Stuff, Jaws 3, or 3D, Dreamscape, Enemy Mine, Inner Space, and The Big Easy. William Neeson plays Carl Anderson. Like Quaid, Neeson's career began in the late 1970s, and he appeared in many films throughout the 80s, but his career-defining role came in 1993 as Oscar Schindler in the movie Schindler's List. The director, Peter Yates. Yates' career began in the early 1960s, with his breakout film being 1968's Bullet with Steve McQueen. Other memorable films for Yates include The Hot Rock with Robert Redford and George Siegel, For Pete's Sake with Barbara Streisand, Mother, Jugs, and Speed with Bill Cosby and Raquel Welch, The Deep with Robert Shaw and Jacqueline Bissett and Nick Nolte, and Breaking Away, which I mentioned with Dennis Quaid. He also infamously directed the sci-fi bomb, Crawl. All right, let's get into the film. Now, sadly, besides the trailer, there are only two decent-sounding clips to be found for this film, so you're stuck with a lot of narration from me on this episode. And it's even a better reason to go check out the film yourself. So it begins at the office of Supreme Court Justice Lowell, played by Thomas Barber. It's the Christmas holiday, and therefore the courts will not be in session. He says goodbye to two of his secretaries. He signs a few papers, then pulls out a hunting rifle and casually puts the rifle in his mouth, and then he pulls the trigger. The Supreme Court now has an opening for a new judge. The next scene, we see a group of older men jumping into the cold Potomac River for some exercise. Once they jump out, they discover a dead female body near the plank. So near where the body was found is a homeless encampment, and a number of homeless people are taken in for questioning by the police. One officer finds a dead woman's wallet and license in a sort of tunnel, where one very weathered homeless man, that's Liam Neeson, is residing. This man gets very violent with the police and pulls a knife on them, before being subdued and handcuffed. We then cut to Kathleen Riley, played by Cher, and she's driving in traffic. Kathleen is a public defender, and her day does not go as planned. The president, speaking this morning at a memorial service at Washington Cathedral, called the justice one of our finest, most eloquent jurists, a man dedicated to law and devoted to truth. Funeral services will be held this afternoon at Arlington Cemetery. That was 
Since that last clip is more visual, I'll explain what just happened. A man runs up to Kathleen's car while she's in traffic and throws a brick at her windshield and smashes it. Then a guy takes her packages from her front seat, and then another guy opens the driver's side door and rips Kathleen's necklace off her neck and runs away. Kathleen tries to chase down the men, but to no avail. And then her car now sits alone on the road. Ironically, those are the type of people she would end up having to defend in court. Kathleen arrives at court for her assignments for that day. One of the men being arraigned in court is the same homeless man that was arrested earlier who had the wallet of the dead woman near him. His name is Carl Wayne Anderson. Carl refuses to talk with a lawyer, or with anyone for that matter. When the judge speaks to him, telling him he's been charged with first-degree murder, Carl stares with dead eyes like the words are not even being heard by him. The judge postpones presentment as he is unable to determine whether Carl is competent or not. This means Carl will be given a psychiatric evaluation. So right as Kathleen attempts to leave the courtroom to go on her much-needed vacation, the judge announces that Kathleen now has a new client, Carl. So Kathleen and Carl are taken to an interview room. Kathleen attempts to ask Carl the standard questions a lawyer would ask when first meeting a client accused of murder. Again, Carl responds to nothing Kathleen asks, and he just paces around the room. Kathleen decides that trying to talk to Carl is a waste of time and asks the guard to let her out of the room. But then suddenly Carl attacks Kathleen, punching her repeatedly for no apparent reason. It's really been quite a day for Kathleen. Kathleen then decides to read over Carl's file that night and then goes back to visit him at the psychiatric hospital where he's being held. Now Carl is strapped to the bed because of his outburst. Instead of verbally communicating with Carl, Kathleen writes a note that says, You're deaf, aren't you? Kathleen then unfastens one of Carl's hands so he can write back to her. He writes, deaf and dumb. Kathleen asks if he understands sign language, and he does not. Next, we meet an agricultural lobbyist, specifically Milk, named Eddie Sanger, played by Dennis Quaid. And he does some wheeling and dealing in an attempt to get a farm bill passed with a congresswoman he's dealt with in the past. We then go back to Kathleen and Carl in an interview room where a chalkboard has been set up in order for Kathleen to communicate with Carl. Carl continues to be violent in lockup as he was in a scuffle with other inmates and the officers. The officers roughed up Carl to keep him in line. Kathleen asks Carl what he was doing at the scene of the crime. He replies that he was looking for wood, but he won't respond to any other questions like why his fingerprints were all over the dead woman's body. Exasperated, Kathleen gives up and is about to leave. Carl then writes on the chalkboard that Michael was there before me, but he doesn't know the last name of Michael. Kathleen tries to get a description of this Michael. According to Carl, he's white, brown eyes, dark hair, medium height, and has a tattoo on his hand that says, Jesus is the Savior. Now, Kathleen is going through some sort of midwife crisis and is caught in limbo with everything. She works nonstop, isn't paid well because she's a public defender instead of a private practice lawyer, and doesn't have time to date or do anything fun. And now she's on a case with a client who is incredibly difficult. But as her colleague Morty tells her after she asks him why does he stay with the job, it's because the one time that they actually saved the poor bastard that didn't do it, it's worth all the stress every other client gave them. The next day, we see Eddie the lobbyist arrive at the courthouse, and he's been summoned for jury duty. So like 99% of the folks who get summoned for jury duty, Eddie is eager to get out of his so-called civic duty. The case that Eddie has been called to potentially serve on is Carl's case. The judge presiding is Judge Helms, played by John Mahoney. You remember him as Ione Sky's dad and Say Anything. 
and Judge Helms has bigger aspirations of potentially serving on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and the state's attorney is named Charlie Stella, played by Joe Mantegna. For this particular case, since Carl is deaf, the court has given him a computer monitor which transcribes all of the dialogue spoken in the courtroom. And since it's 1987, Think of the green text over a black screen, but still, it's pretty cool technology for 1987. We then see the jury selection process, which I've always found fascinating because there's a real art and sometimes luck when selecting a jury. Now, I've served on a jury twice and really enjoyed the experience both times. Now, the cases I served on weren't murder cases, but I found the entire process fascinating and I'm one of the exceptions when it comes to getting called for jury duty. Now, I wouldn't say I look forward to it, but I don't try to get out of it either when I'm called. I think everyone should experience the process of serving at least once to see what the judicial system is like. And I think you'll definitely have an appreciation when you complete your service. So we go back to the movie. Here's an example of a strategy used by Kathleen when selecting jurors. She asked one prospective juror, who was a loan officer, if he ever had a tough time on a home foreclosure. Meaning, does he ever feel bad about kicking a person out of their home? The man replied that he has no issues whatsoever. The person can't afford their obligation. It's their problem, not his. Now, realizing that this sort of attitude would potentially harm Kathleen's defense of Carl, who is a homeless man, Kathleen uses one of her dismissals or challenges on the loan officer. It's then Eddie's turn to be questioned by the lawyers. The prosecutor asks Eddie if he is for or against the death penalty. Kathleen objects to the question since Washington, D.C. does not have the death penalty. The objection is overruled with the caveat that the judge states that on the record that D.C. doesn't have the death penalty. However, the judge makes a snide comment that, quote-unquote, some believe D.C. should have the death penalty. Eddie replies that he believes the punishment should fit the crime. Kathleen then questions Eddie. She asks a bit about his work as a lobbyist and then asks if he believes in the U.S. justice system. Eddie says he believes a person is innocent until proven guilty. Kathleen then pulls a bit of a fun stunt and asks Eddie to turn around with his back facing her. She then asks what the color of her hair is. Eddie pauses a bit and then says brown. Now, clearly, Kathleen's hair is dyed black, but Eddie replies that his response was based on what her real hair color was. This leads Kathleen to state to all the jurors that appearances aren't what they seem and that they should all look deeper than what's on the surface. It's a very nice scene. Eddie is still hard at work trying to get his bill passed and seduces a congresswoman who can help him get him votes. But elsewhere, there's a private detective named Everett Bennett, played by Richard Gann, who was hired by Kathleen and is searching for clues at the homeless camp where the dead woman was found. And by the way, you might remember Gant, who plays kind of the Don King clone in Rocky V. Everett finds a man that fits the description that Carl gave Kathleen, including the tattoo. Everett tries to serve a court summons to the guy, but he's slashed in the face by the man, and the suspect runs off. The suspect is named Michael John Guthridge. Kathleen asks Judge Helms for a continuous due to the violent attack on her detective and the fact that there's no chance in hell that Guthridge would actually show up to the court voluntarily. And Kathleen's request is denied by the judge, and he feels it could take weeks or months to track down Guthridge and thus delay the trial indefinitely. So the trial begins with Eddie on the jury. Carl is now clean-shaven with a haircut and a suit given by Kathleen. From the prosecution's opening statement, we learn who the dead woman was. Her name was Elizabeth Rose Quinn, and she was a file clerk at the Justice Department. At the time of her murder, all she had on her was $9, and she worked late the night she was killed. She took the bus to the parking lot where her car was parked, but she never made it to her car. Now, the reason Carl is a suspect, in addition to having her wallet next to him when the police found him, 
was that he was sleeping in Elizabeth's car earlier in the day until a lot attendant chased him away. In Kathleen's opening statement, we discover a bit more about Carl. He was a Vietnam veteran and fought in combat. When he returned to the U.S. after the war, he was admitted to a veteran psychiatric hospital to recover from PTSD, and then he contracted spinal meningitis, and he lost his hearing, along with his ability to speak. Outside of court, Eddie's maneuvering with the congresswoman worked, and the bill he lobbied for passed. Though he feels a bit dirty about what he had to do in order to get the bill to pass, but that's life as a lobbyist, right? Back in the courtroom, death photos of Elizabeth are shown to the jury as her throat was cut with a knife similar to what was found on Carl. The jury is about to be dismissed for a brief recess before Eddie requests to see the photo again. Eddie looks at the photo and then the jury is dismissed and Kathleen receives a note with a phone number on it, but no name is given. When Kathleen calls the number, a man on the line asks if her client is right or left-handed. I think you can guess where this is headed. Also, if you didn't know already, attorneys are absolutely forbidden to talk to jurors. If that occurs, it's an easy mistrial. Also, jury tampering is a felony. Court is now back in session, and Kathleen cross-examines the witness who analyzed Carl's knife. The findings on the knife were inconclusive, meaning the blood and tissue couldn't be matched to Elizabeth, and therefore no evidence from the knife found on Carl was the murder weapon. The knife wound on Elizabeth was made by someone who was right-handed, as the slashing was made left to right. If the person was left-handed, the slash would be made the opposite way. It was at that moment, as Kathleen is wrapping up her cross-examination, that she remembers the phone call question and decides to pull this brilliant maneuver. Your excuse, Doctor. Carl? Objection, Your Honor. One more stunt like that, Counselor, and I'll slap you with a contempt citation so fast you won't know what hit you. So what Kathleen did was to toss a device from her pocket to Carl, who instinctively grabbed the item with his left hand. This means it's highly unlikely that Carl would have slashed Elizabeth from behind, as the slash wound is completely unnatural from that angle for a left-handed person. Court is then dismissed for the day. Walking the busy downtown streets, we see Eddie with a smirk on his face, knowing that he played a part in what just happened. Kathleen walks by Eddie and says, Mr. Sanger, if don't ever do that again without breaking stride. However, Eddie catches up with Kathleen and tries to pull his typical smooth talk routine he's perfected in his lobbyist gig. Kathleen is very agitated and makes it clear that Eddie is not to attempt to tamper with the trial again. As Kathleen drives away, Judge Helms just happens to be walking by with a colleague. He suspiciously sees Eddie standing in the parking lot and then sees Kathleen drive away. This is not good for Kathleen. In the meantime, Eddie decides to investigate the parking lot where Elizabeth's car was found. And jurors are never allowed to do investigations on their own. Alright, this is where the film gets really juicy and there's tons of twists and turns in the final hour, so I can't possibly give away any more of the plot. But I will say there's an absolutely terrific scene at a law library where the tension is just excellent. I love courtroom movies, as I've said before, and I believe this is a well-done film with terrific acting. And you will never guess the outcome, which means you should definitely see the film. And I think people forget what a great actress Cher was, especially in the 1980s. And I think Suspect is another example of her quality work. 
All right, some fun facts. So Liam Neeson actually lived in a Washington, D.C. homeless shelter for two days to prepare for his role. Cher also prepared for her role by spending a considerable amount of time with the public defender's office in Washington, D.C. And Cher was quoted as saying, I sat in on a real murder trial, and it's enormously different from anything I'd ever seen in film or on television. I went to jail and spent time with convicted men, and that was an amazing experience because it's so strange because I look at all these guys and they're somebody's child or brother or father, but they've all just gone the wrong way. Dennis Quaid took a month before filming to talk and spend time with Capitol Hill lobbyists, as well as jurors and judges to prepare for his part as a Capitol Hill lobbyist. All right, again, check this out if you haven't seen it. Again, I love the 80s, but this is kind of a timeless film because the jury you know, process really hasn't changed in all these years. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.